0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.
1: It's Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. With the coronavirus on everyone's mind, MSP's Matt Armitage takes one of his periodic detours into the land of discovery to remind us that science is sick. Not literally sick, I hope, Matt.
0: Uh, hey, Jeff. Well, no, I mean, the hope is, of course, always that uh, science and technology make our lives better. You know, for all that we're currently in this period of being very suspicious of technology and the people that use it, we're always quick to look to those same tools and people um, that we say we don't trust to look for solutions to things <laughs> like coronavirus. It's like, scientists, save us. Um, but despite the um, the danger uh, that the the virus poses and the imperfect application of uh, some of the, the tools. It is quite amazing how some of these technology tools are being used. Uh, so uh, last week on Geeks, we mentioned uh, the use of artificial intelligence as an epi- uh, epidemiology tool. Um, I won't go over that again. You know, you can go and check that out in uh, BFM's archive. So that was a story Jeff presented last week. Um You know, we have all of this additional assistance to help model how viruses are going to spread, how they replicate. Uh, There have already been various reports that we might be close to an experimental vaccine for the coronavirus. And that's astonishing, given that we've only known of its existence for literally a handful of weeks.
1: Mm, But today isn't about the coronavirus.
0: No, but there do seem to be a lot of health and med tech related stories in this week's show, which is, you know, coincidental rather than deliberate.
1: Plus, you are the one choosing the stories.
0: Uh, Well, yes. Okay. So the (laughs) coincidental part may be slightly more than just coincidence. But, um, you know, some of the most interesting stories that come out on a weekly basis are health related. You know, we've talked often about how medical technology is one of the most exciting areas currently and because, you know, I'll happily do two hours on the joy of 3D printing and (laughs) why you should wear a tinfoil hat and live in a bunker, Um, but it's not particularly audience-friendly. But if you do want a bunker story, here is one from the new scientist. Mm. You know, uh, we're often reminded how bad um, PM 2.5 pollution is for our health, particle matter 2.5. PM 2.5, they're these extremely fine particles that are present in the emissions of things like power plants, forest fires, cars, planes, that kind of stuff. They can also form spontaneously in the air when uh, certain particles and gases collide. And they're of particular concern because they are so small and light, so they stay in the air for much longer. They don't fall to earth as quickly as larger particles. And their size means that they bypass the filters that we have, which are our our throats and our noses, so they get breathed directly into our lungs. Uh, We're still establishing uh, the links, the direct links between these particles and things like heart and lung diseases, but it seems certain that they worsen a lot of chronic lung and heart diseases, consequently eliminating or reducing uh, the PM2.5 levels to the ones recommended by the WHO are actually a priority in a lot of countries, but especially city by city and town by town.
1: And the good news is?
0: Well, the good news (laughs) is that there may be an upside to PM2.5 particles. They may actually help to prevent even finer particles, which are uh, classified unsurprisingly as ultrafine particles. Um, And these are things that have been linked to things like birth defects. So these PM2.5 particles effectively trap the ultrafine particles a bit like, you know, that effect of smoke inside a bubble.
1: So you want to promote the spread of disease-creating pollution?
0: Well, that would be a very MSP dystopian type idea, but um, no, um, this is actually from a a high... Hypothesis that was tested in a study in Beijing by uh, a US-Chinese team that included researchers from the Texas A&M University. So they concluded that cities shouldn't simply focus their attention on the fine particles, but also on reducing the emissions that create these ultrafine particles as well. Now, one of the m- main sources for these is uh, VOCs, or volatile organic compounds, which again are released by motor vehicles. So reducing these uh, PM2.5, these fine particles, without t- uh, tackling the ultrafine VOC emissions, could actually lead to worse air quality and poorer health outcomes.
1: So cars could sound like a possible solution?
0: Yeah, and China is really gung-ho about electric cars, and it seems for good reason. So yes, reducing the number of petrol and diesel vehicles on the road will go some way to mitigating the risk of these fine and ultra-fine pollutants in the air. But it also shows the importance of a balanced approach that takes all the factors into consideration. Uh, Because, you know, we know that some things, they might be good and bad tend to get more of the media spotlight. So it's easier to focus uh, your efforts on resolving the issues that face that media scrutiny. And, of course, it gets complicated by national issues as well because it depends on the source of those pollutants and things like emission standards in terms of uh, how big a risk ultrafine particles will actually be in a given location. And often that means that cities in developing countries rather than cities in more developed countries, are the ones at uh, greater risk of developing these particles.
1: So what else is in your health pile?
0: Well, again, this is something else that's real sci-fi movie medicine territory. And it does actually sound really scary. Mm. It's a pill that delivers an injection to your intestines. Uh, (laughs) It's called the Rani pill. It's developed by Rani Therapeutics of San Jose in California. Now, it is larger than the average pill, when you swallow it, it passes through the stomach untouched, but then it starts to dissolve inside your intestines. And that's where the, the really clever stuff starts to happen.
1: A swarm of nanobots emerge and start to knock through the intestinal wall?
0: That would be really cool. <laughs> um, uh, no less cool is uh, what actually happens, which is once the outer coating of the pill dissolves, a tiny balloon inflates and it pushes a needle that's inside the pill into the wall of the intestine. Now Jeff's face has just gone. What? Um, once it's delivered, the balloon deflates, and then it passes through the rest of your digestive system with no problems. You you just excrete it. Um, so why would you need such a terrifying thing? You ask. <laughs>
1: why would you need such a terrifying thing? I ask.
0: I'm glad you asked. Um, Apparently, and this is news to me as well, the intestine doesn't have receptors for sharp pain, Mm. and it also heals very quickly. So it's actually completely painless, according to uh, Mir Imran, the company's head. Obviously, he would say it's completely painless. He has a a vested interest. But yeah, it, it seems that it is. It's being pitched as the ideal alternative for people who receive regular injections, such as Uh, diabetes sufferers or people with certain types of cancer and growth disorders Um, and especially when there's no oral alternative for a drug so for example diabetes uh, uh, sufferers have to take insulin because if you take it orally it's uh, destroyed in the gut so it's uh, useless unless you actually inject it As with any kind of injection, there are quality of life issues because, you know, there's pain issues, there are discomfort. And if you're injecting yourself daily, as a lot of people with diabetes do, it can sometimes be difficult to find suitable environments where you can inject and minimize those Mm. kind of infection risks. So those impediments actually create an incentive to skip a dose or two, which reduces the overall efficacy of the medicine that you're taking.
1: And is this close to market?
0: It's actually in human trials already. Oh. Uh, in Australia, 52 people were giving uh, Rani pills containing a cancer drug tool called uh, octreotide. Uh, they felt no pain or discomfort. And the pill turned out to be as effective at delivering the drug as conventional injections. Further trials are planned for this year, and the company is focusing on using the device to deliver nine drugs uh, initially, including that one that I mispronounced before, and I'm not (laughs) going to try again, and insulin. Uh, And while the um, octreotide trials are promising, (laughs) extensive trials for diabetes sufferers will be needed before we can determine the viability of insulin. Uh, injecting pills as a delivery system for insulin. All
1: right. One last quick medical development as we head to the break.
0: Well, some of our listeners may be patting themselves on the back after completing uh, Veganuary (laughs) and uh, going vegan for a month. So congratulations to all of you. and as a reward, they can feel happy that they are now at a much lower risk of contracting a urine retract infection. <laughs> um, probably not the prize that they were <laughs> expecting. But Chinlong um, uh, Lin at uh, Azuchi University in Taiwan and his colleagues looked at whether vegetarians would have a lower risk of UTIs than people <laughs> who eat meat. Well, you know, scientists have something. To, they've got to do something in their downtime. Uh, their study looked at nearly 10,000 people over a 10-year period. Uh, that's a lot of downtime. Um, and they discovered that vegetarians were 16% less likely to have a UTI than meat eaters. <laughs> um, weirdly, they found the protective effect of a, a vegetarian diet was uh, more pronounced in women than men. They don't understand the reason for that yet. But men in general experience fewer UTIs. Um, because the urinary tract is shorter in women, so they have a much higher risk anyway.
1: Hmm. Any idea why?
0: Women have a shorter <laughs> urinary tract. Um, no, not my area of uh, expertise. Um, in terms of vegetarian diet, mm. uh, it's actually a little bit unclear. It may be due to the presence of uh, E. coli bacteria in meats like pork and chicken. Now, as any listeners who have experienced E. coli-related uh, food poisoning will know, it's an experience you'll likely never forget. Uh, it's perhaps less widely known, though, that many UTIs are actually caused by strains of E. coli bacteria that are either consumed or Grow in the gut, so not eating those animal products eliminates one source, mm. and it's thought that the additional fibre in a plant-based diet helps to promote gut health. So the E. coli bacteria uh, find it more difficult to, to breed in uh, in your intestines.
1: So we should all just give up meat.
0: Well, some researchers have said that the link may be overstated. So <laughs> the study didn't account for pregnancy, which is a major source of UTIs. It also excluded uh, those who had previously had UTIs, who you might think would be the ideal person. To, <laughs> they had uh, 10 to, years. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, the participants were required to give up drinking and smoking <laughs> for 10 years. Um, so, yes, we should all give up meat, but maybe we shouldn't expect a huge payoff in terms of <laughs> the frequency of UTIs.
1: <laughs> Once again, MSP boldly goes where it might have been better not to go at all. After the break, Matt reports from the space, the sterile vacuum that is his spiritual home. BFM 89.9.
0: Begin free Malaysia. BFM 89.9. The business station.
1: And we're back. It is Fun Friday together with Culture Pops. Matt Armitage. Uh, before the break, we promised you an update from Matt's happy place. What's happening in space, Matt?
0: I'll take that. Um, (laughs) I guess space is a a happy place for me. Um, First story is a slightly weird and dystopian one. You
1: do surprise me.
0: Well, as our our listeners are probably only too aware, the US officially launched its Space Force a few weeks ago (laughs) with a logo that looks (laughs) mighty similar to a certain fictional Space Federation. So while the... uh, graphic designers get on with uh, saving humanity, it seems that Space Force may actually have its first battle on its hands already.
1: The Romulans?
0: Even closer to home. Now, this is a a story from Technology Review, um, and it seems that uh, on January the 20th, a Russian satellite manoeuvred into an orbit that closely shadows (laughs) a US spy satellite, the US-245, at a distance of around 300 kilometres. Now, that's practically touching in space terms. Russia claims that the satellite, the Cosmos 2542, is conducting an an inspection of some of its own space assets.
1: And what's the reason? It's like those old Cold War air battles?
0: Well, it seems to be a bit like that. You know, no one's giving much away. Mm. Um, Satellites have very limited fuel supplies, so you don't just change the orbit (laughs) of a satellite on a whim. Uh, Todd Harrison, head of the Aerospace Security Project at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, says that these kind of uh, inspector satellites can actually determine a lot about what a u.s satellite might be up to Uh, they could figure out what the aperture and resolution of the cameras are Um, if there are radio receivers on board the uh, the cosmos satellite it could determine uh, when the satellite is using its computers when it's operating Mm -hmm. and when it's actually taking pictures so then it gives the um the 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 Russian operators a good idea of exactly what the US is surveilling, because they know the position, and how well they can actually see what it's taking pictures of.
1: And is this kind of activity normal?
0: Well, it seems that over the last 10 years or so, uh, a number of countries have been displaying uh, this kind of technology and tactics. Uh, Russia, of course, China, and the US itself. Mm. The US is not a benign (laughs) actor here. Um, Although it sounds suspicious, I guess you can't really hope to deploy a spy satellite and then complain that somebody (laughs) is spying on you. You know, uh, there is, of course, always a risk of uh, uh, threat and escalation. So I guess that at some point this kind of behaviour will become part and parcel of some mm. superpower treaty on space. But maybe by then uh, we'll have a Russian Space Force and they'll <laughs> be using the logo of the Klingon Empire. <laughs> but um, while we're on the subject of spying, I've got a quick story on albatrosses.
1: Well, of course you have. What could be more logical?
0: Well, the French National Centre for Scientific Research has been using albatrosses as deep-sea spy satellites or drones for... For the past few months, um, scientists have strapped uh, sensors to 169 birds and released them in the southern Indian Ocean. And the purpose is to detect illegal fishing activity. Mm. Now, apparently 17 billion US dollars gets lost a year to illegal fishing. And of course, it's a huge thorn in the side of the marine conservation experts who are trying to, you know, preserve and rebuild fish stocks. So the way they usually kind of track this is via satellites, but that's expensive. And as we've seen, they seem to be playing (laughs) chicken with each other in space. So they don't have much time to look for fishing boats.
1: Why albatrosses?
0: Well, because albatrosses cover huge distances. You know, they're mm-hmm. birds that go really far out to sea. So they are great for this deep sea exploration. But it's especially pertinent because they're actually attractive <laughs> fishing boats. No, because yeah. they can land on the, the boat. So it's a, a place to have a rest. Yeah. But also because, you know, they follow the boats and they can get the churn the charm or the the Mm. fish stocks that that are brought up um so they're a bit like homing beacons Mm. for Mm. fishing boats (laughs) um and the sensors they carry activate uh about 30 kilometers away from uh, a boat's radar and that's those sensors can then determine whether the um, automatic identification systems on the boats are actually up and running so those systems as you expect are used for identification, but they're also used for collision avoidance. So switching them off is often a sign that the boat is up to something that it shouldn't Mm. be doing. And the results from, I think it was a three-month survey, were really stark. 25.8% of boats that were within um, exclusive economic zones belonging to countries had their identification system switched off. Now, those boats are legally required to report their activity and what yeah. they're fishing. In international waters, that went even higher to 36.9% of vessels who had gone dark. Hmm. Now, that is not illegal, but according to convention, those catches should still be disclosed, presumably at the... the uh, the the port of landing.
1: So how is the data collected? Presumably the birds don't return to a docking station to power up like a drone.
0: Well, no, obviously they're (laughs) not homing albatrosses. That would (laughs) require a a lot more training. Um, But no, the data is actually relayed in real time. So the potential is there also for navies and coast guards to use it for enforcement operations as well. But it may turn out to be a short-term fix, however clever it sounds, because the number of satellites is constantly increasing, and that's driving down, you know, the prices Mm. of doing this kind of monitoring and also increasing the coverage as well. So it could well be that the days of boats fishing illegally in the oceans might well be numbered.
1: So you brought it back to space?
0: Yes, because I am my own (laughs) albatross covering great distances and settling on unsuspecting passers-by. there is a great space story that we're covering in this week's Geeks, and all I'm going to say about that is popcorn. <laughs> um, but we are sticking with satellites for a moment. So we've talked about the potential threat of satellite uh, deployment to astronomers on the show before, that as the skies above Earth fill with these you know, shiny reflecting objects, they make it harder for ground-based telescopes to actually look out into mm. um the the wider universe.
1: Which is why we've heard stories about telescopes being planned for the dark side of the moon?
0: Partly, yeah, to avoid some of the light pollution. Mm. But now uh, a group of astronomers has called for legal action to stop the launch of satellites designed to beam high-speed internet around the world. Uh, They want an impact assessment to be carried out and the launch is halted until then. Uh, So, for example, um, a company like uh, SpaceX has already launched 240 (laughs) satellites as part of its plan and Starlink constellation, which could number up to 42,000 satellites mm. in total. Uh, another company, the UK's OneWeb, is also planning to launch hundreds of its own uh, broadband internet satellites as well.
1: But who presides over space? Who makes the rules?
0: Well, that's one of those tricky things. You know, potentially you could take a, a case to the International Court of Justice. You might argue that the night sky is a shared human right under the World uh, Heritage convention or a case could potentially be filed against the federal communications commission in the u.s who gave the licensing to starlink for its part spacex is testing a starlink satellite that's coated in a darker material that it uh, won't reflect as much light but then you know you you can't see it you might crash into it but just to to kind of put it into context um SpaceX is planning to launch 1,500 Starlink satellites this year alone. Now, there are currently only 1,500 satellites in orbit around the Earth. So they're going to double the number. Uh, That includes, you know, all of those spy satellites and everything. So they're going to double the number of satellites just this year alone. Wow! Um, So who knows? In a few years' time, when we look up into the night sky, all we might see is this kind of Umbrella of dots from tens of thousands of uh, commercial spacecraft.
1: Now, I know you're excited about Star Trek Picard, but there's only so much space listeners can take in one episode, Matt.
0: Okay, I'll do something different then. So one of the themes in Picard is that androids like Data have been outlawed uh, due to apparent acts of terrorism.
1: I thought you said something different. Different
0: from space, not different (laughs) from Picard. Um, This is actually my favourite story of the week. So a team of scientists at Cornell University in New York has invented a robot that can sweat to cool itself down. Now, that's not as scary as it sounds. The machine has soft grippers that are made from hydrogels. These can store large amounts of water. Uh, the surface of the gripper is covered in micropores. So when the machine is cold, the pores stay cold, uh, stay closed. rather. But at temperatures above 30 degrees centigrade, they open and pressurized fluid from the underlayer of the <laughs> fingers then sweats out. And
1: there are no uh, sensors?
0: No, because the material itself is heat reactive. So in a sense, it happens naturally hmm. or autonomously. It doesn't need to be monitored or triggered. The grippers are able to cool themselves with about three times the efficiency of a sweating human. And the team was able to demonstrate that this sweating enables the machines to lower their temperature to below the environmental temperature, which is exactly what humans do in order to stay alive.
1: What's the usage for this?
0: Well, it's ideal for machines that will be in long-term use and maybe in unmonitored or semi-monitored locations. Uh, The biggest current drawback is that once the water has been sweated out, They can't self-replenish unless we actually teach the machines to drink (laughs) as well. Uh, And then, of course, the man-machine water wars (laughs) will commence.
1: Full of joy, as usual. So let's wrap up with something that gives us hope for technology and the future.
0: Well, researchers at the Technical University of Munich in Germany have created uh, wearables using liquid dyes that are sensitive to UVA and UVB radiation. So you track your exposure according to the color change of the dye. So it's very, very simple. Uh, And it means that it's entirely uh, personalized to your exposure. Uh, There's an app as well. So you can enter the uh, data into the app. And the connection part is beautifully simple. There are no complicated sensors. You snap a photo of the wearable and the app records the percentage shift in color and updates your exposure levels accordingly.
1: And this is one of those things you like because it's high tech and low tech.
0: Yeah, it's simple. It's easy. The techie part isn't overcomplicated. And that's really important with self-monitoring devices. The more layers you add, the less people are likely to use it. But I didn't even mention the coolest part. Um, As well as the normal uh, wearables you'd expect, you know, wristbands, skin patches, you can also put the dye into the edges of things like your glasses or sunglasses. Mm. So while you're wearing them, the fringe of the lenses changes color as you absorb UV and it gives you a color-coded signal as to whether you need to get out of the sun and wow, into nice. the shade but even beyond that you can also do that with contact lenses oh. so you can actually be <laughs> protecting your eyes and your skin at the same time and for me that's ingenuity and innovation at their best and that's why science is sick <laughs> i
1: always do love this this kind of episodes where you do you know a show on science is sick because i think you know it gives a it gives us hope for humanity
0: yeah, as long as it's not a, a dystopian one. Yeah.
1: yeah, Don't like the needle in my intestine, though. I love
0: that. I think that's really amazing.
1: We'll be right back with more uh, on Geek Squawks after this, BFM
0: 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.